on behalf of the Investments Committee of the Actuarial Society of South Africa, welcome to what is hopefully the first annual um, ASI Investment Seminar. The purpose of this seminar is to provide an opportunity for professional development, not only for investment actuaries, but also for other actuaries and investment professionals. Um, and with that in mind, as um, Chris has mentioned, we'd like to say a special word of welcome to the members of the CFA Institute. Um, we have a very good relationship with our sister profession, and we look forward to our interactions today. Um, and also on that note, for those of you who don't know, the Actual Society of South Africa is a professional organization for actuaries and actuarial students in South Africa. The vision of the Actual Society is an actuarial profession of substance and stature. We want to be seen to be serving our communities as a primary source of thought leadership in the modeling and management of financial and measurable risks. It's quite a mouthful. Um, the Investments Committee of ESSA, in turn, advises ESSA on investment-related matters, forms the Society's membership, membership on matters relevant to investment actuaries across South Africa. Key stakeholders in, would include the Association for Savings and Investment, SA, the CFA Institute, as I've mentioned, and the JSE. The committee's views are also presented to National Treasury and the relevant regulators from time to time. The committee serves members by hosting CPD events like this one today, supporting the society's education efforts, and also promoting investment-related research. Um, and just on that note, a reminder that members of the actual society can subscribe to our microsite. Address, yeah, the address you can see there. Quite a lot of effort goes into maintaining that microsite, so if you haven't subscribed before, I think you'd be surprised at the breadth and, relevant of breadth and relevance of information you can, can find there. And then just allow me to say a special word of thanks. Uh, Chris has already thanked the sponsors, but just thank you to Alan Gray, Coronation, and Prudential for their financial assistance. And then a very, very special word of thanks. Uh, we were joking about the, the compensation on an hourly basis if we were to work that out for, <laughs> for Hildegard and uh, Leonard for the excellent program they put together, Hildegard, Wilson, and Leonard Kruger, pretty much single-handedly, and I'm sure you'll agree it's an excellent program that we have, that we have today. Thank you also to Melanie Janssen and her team at, at the Actual Society for events management and logistical support. With that, all that remains then for me is to say, let's make the most of today's conference. Our speakers come from very diverse backgrounds, so let's learn from each other. Thank you. It now gives me great pleasure to welcome to the stage an old friend, um, somebody who's been in the industry for many, many moons, and Cabot Alitzhauser, and has been with Alexander Forbes since 2010. She's the head of research there and in charge of the thought leadership initiatives for Alexander Forbes. Prior to that, she spent 32 years in asset management, a global career. The only three continents on which she has not worked as an asset manager are Australia, South America, and Antarctica. But, um, but uh, yeah, apparently there are a few plans. Um, she is also a CFA Institute member and, of course, a very, very renowned speaker and publisher, number of publications, guides, etc. over the years. I think Collective Insights is certainly um, probably one of her most recent um, publications and, and is very much the, the driving force behind Collective Insights. She's on the FTSE JSE Advisory Committee, a member of that committee, and, and also a member of the ASISA Gap Fund Working Committee. And Anne will be talking to us today 
about a much-needed wake-up call for pension fund professionals, what really matters in delivering outcomes. And welcome. So I get the wake-up call, right? Except for I've been told, on good authority, the, the graveyard shift is the first shift in Cape Town, is that right? <laughs> so, okay, everybody up. You know, it's Japan, let's get going. No, 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 I didn't mean that. <laughs> okay. Here's what I want to do today. I want to take you on a journey. We're going to go back to the future. By the time we finish that journey, you're either going to be throwing things at me, you're going to be saying, gee, that's a really interesting thought, or you're going to look at me dumbly and think, God, is she completely off her you know, trolley? One of those three things. Um, this is a kind of last hurrah. I've been thinking a lot, a lot, a lot over the 35 years. It's going to be 35 as of January. And it's always the same recurring theme. And I think I've got a really interesting idea that's going to finally crack this damn nut. So I want to share that with you today. Now, this, by the way, thankfully, is not going to be the agenda for discussion. But it could have been. Why the current consulting convention may be fatally flawed, understanding the importance of the consultant in the value chain, proposed reg revisions to Regulation 28, economics of the trustee-consultant relationship, what would it take to make that relationship work? Sound familiar? That was this talk that I gave in 2002 to this group. 2002. Now, the irony is nothing's changed. We still haven't made much progress along the lines. And I see David Wakerley's over here, and he and I put that presentation together. And we really thought we had some really interesting and innovative ideas in there. And guess what happened? Absolutely nothing. So the question is, why couldn't we get the industry to sit up and say, is it really working effectively, and what could we do about it? And we put some very sound thoughts on the table. I'll cover some of them again today. But the bottom line was, why were we so entrenched in our ways? Why couldn't we move out of the model that we've been embracing for the last 50 years almost? Is it because we're lazy? Do we have some costs? Maybe we're too much invested in the model that we have. Is it because we've got make a lot of money with this model, even if our clients don't? I don't know. But I can tell you one thing, why the ideas that we put on the table never caught on, because just after 2002, we hit a massive bull market. And at that point, it didn't matter, because it looked as though everyone was winning, didn't it? At least the asset managers were. Their performances were absolutely spectacular. But did the members of the pension funds win? And that's really the crux of the problem, because we're right at a kind of interesting juncture. <clears throat> We've got this transition period of DB to DC that we're not really out of. You know, we still haven't got a pure period that we can look at. 
And yet we're sitting there with research coming out that's showing that people are actually retiring with replacement ratios of 32%, in spite of these huge bull markets. Now, these numbers are really, really, don't ever quote me on these numbers, even though they sit in benefits barometer and stuff like that, because there's lots of problems in the numbers. We don't really know what the number is. But we know enough to know that there is a problem out there. And that's really what this is all about. Fund managers are doing just fine, thank you very much. But members of pension funds aren't. So where's the breakdown and what's the role that we all play in getting it right? And that's what that back to the future discussion is all about. So let's get this thing to work. The reality is technology is going to overcome us. It's going to take us where we need to go to anyway. The other reality is we're getting so many better insights about what's going on, what drives performance, what drives outcomes, that we can no longer ignore them. And finally, the regulators are out there, and the regulators are demanding a change, and they're demanding delivery. And they think things are broken. And so a lot of what I want to talk to today is about that lovely document, the cost paper, and what we're going to do about that. Are you getting a echo back there? Because I am up here. Are you okay? There. So we know the game will change. And what I want to do is keep us all, because we're all in this together, ahead of that curve. And this time, it's personal. <laughs> I take it personal. And I tried to think, what do I have to tell you guys or get you to agree with me or at least accept with me that maybe puts a better foundation for the discussion than what we had the first time around. So I'm going to take that wisdom of 35 years and tell you what I think are three of the most important takeaways of those 35 years, particularly for those of you in investing. And the first one is that in our game, numbers mean everything, and the numbers mean nothing. And if you buy one book, one book only, as a professional in this industry, buy Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, because he has dedicated a whole section of his book to the law of small numbers. And we bow down as an industry to the law of small numbers. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the one that says, by my fund, I have been the top performer for the last 10 years. And we know, damn it all, we are all numerate individuals, maybe everyone except for me in this room. But we know damn well not to use those numbers, and yet we do it over and over and over again. And we suck those clients in. And the great value destruction, which we have been told over and over and over again, is not that asset managers don't perform, it's that somebody out there performs better and the investor chops and changes. The markets are a game, Mr. Market, we all know that name. It's not a fundamentally based, it's a behaviorally based phenomenon. It means we need to get real what we're capable of controlling and what we can't control. We need to get humble. And we need to ask, what is it really worth what we deliver to our clients? 
This, I love this stuff. This is my party trick. If you haven't heard me talk to Michael Mobison's chart, I want to talk about it again so that you can take this concept out to your clients. It's so powerful. Because what Mobison talks about is, he says, I can take any human endeavor, any activity, any sport, any game, any business, and I can put it on a continuum and ask five questions. And the answers to those five questions will help me determine where on that continuum between skill and luck that endeavor sits. So you can see over here, we've got Marathon Runner right out there with skilled. We've got over at the other end, the roulette wheel. Can anybody see where the asset manager sits in? Somewhere down there, right? Right above the roulette wheel, somewhere about where poker is, by the way. Poker's pretty good, you can win at poker. Because it's a behavioral game, it's not just a game of luck. It's a game of psyching out your other competitors. So what are the questions? And I'm gonna do them very quickly so we can move on to the crux of this discussion, because I just think this is really powerful. Can you intentionally lose? Think about that. Because if you can intentionally lose at that endeavor, it means that it takes skill to succeed in it. Can an asset manager ever intentionally lose short of stealing the money? <laughs> yes, no, anybody want to challenge that one? I don't think they can. Even if you wanted to short lawnmen the day of Maracana, somebody out there would have said, ooh, what a value opportunity. Does practice improve outcomes? Even that CFA track that we saw at the last conference suggests that it does. I actually challenged that and asked to see the research. And I don't, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that practice makes perfect in the game of asset management. I don't think it does. They say that intelligence seems to relate. And most of you know my monoamine oxidase story, so I'm not going to tell it again. But basically, there's very little that we can find that can explain whether you or you or you are likely to become a better manager than you or you or you. Practice does not improve the outcomes in asset management. In fact, if anything, we become grounded in asset management. If there's transitivity, if A beats B, B beats C, A should beat C, think of the World Cup. That is also a phenomenon that explains why asset management is not a game as much of skill as it is of luck. Do outcomes revert to the mean? In general, they do. Some people can keep going, but in general, we see the most performances reverting. The key is how many conditions have to come right between what you have to offer and delivering performance. Think of Clark, De Silva, and Thorley's law, fundamental, generalized law of fundamental asset management and the transfer coefficients, your ability to transfer perfect stock ideas into performance absolutely gets hammered because of the normal constraints you have to operate in in a diversified portfolio. So 
in the markets as well. You are dependent not on just what your knowledge is all about, but guessing what someone else's knowledge about the market is and guessing what their knowledge of somebody else is. Do you remember that wonderful game The Economist would pay every year? And the trick was you had to come up with the winning vote would be the person who could guess what everybody else would guess the markets would do next year. Do you remember that one? And then I think you had to divide it by two. Something crazy like that. But I mean, can you imagine how, that's what we actually do as investment professionals. That's a game we're playing. So the last one I want to put up there of the lessons that I've learned is that in spite of all the refutations of what academics say, I read their stuff, and you should too. Because where we are making breakthroughs in academic research is in understanding what drives performance, understanding what really is meaningful. Okay, maybe we're not coming up with any new clever ideas about what drives alpha, where alpha comes from, but we understand what part of what you're all doing is a function of skill and what part is luck, and that is enormously powerful. So keep those things in mind, and let's get back to our story now, okay? Ah. I thought I'd show you the very first academic thing I ever saw, because I, I forgot I threw this little slide in there, because it's worth remembering. I've kept this slide for years. I got this slide in 1980. I was given this slide by Barr Rosenberg, who at that time was at creating something called the Barr Risk Models. And when I saw this slide as a young asset manager, I thought, holy shit, excuse me, I use that expression because I think in terms of asset management education as being a series of oh shit moments. When you read a paper and you go, that's so obvious, but I just didn't think about it. And this one just blew me away. And it blew me away because it became a profoundly easy way to explain to clients what actually happens to a great idea, my specific risk up here, when I put that idea inside of a diversified portfolio, that average portfolio, what happens to the part that I think I can control at Insight? And then what happens when my institutional or my pension fund client goes and puts multiple portfolios in there because they don't want the risk of a single portfolio? And when it squeezes down to that, you really have to ask yourself, what is it that we're delivering to our clients? Now, I am not in any way a passive advocate, okay? So we're going to get that off the table. But I am going to try to show you where I think we can come up with some really better ideas in here. So let's go back to the problem. We kind of have the facts. We know that we've had these fabulous real returns. We think the replacement ratios don't remotely keep up with that. The problem is my time period for that 32% replacement ratio just isn't the full 40 years it should take. The question is, what's going wrong? And I start off this section with a quote from, uh, it's, it was an opening quote from Keith Ambixer's wonderful book, Pension Fund Excellence. Read it, it's an old classic. But these two anthropologists did a study of how pension funds were being run around the world, and they came up with some absolutely fascinating comments. And I love this one. This was their opening line. 
Our assessment of the management of the process for pension funds is a little bit like an airline passenger who peeks into the cockpit at 30,000 feet and discovers there's no one there. I'm not talking about asset management. I'm talking about the whole delivery mechanism of what it takes in the value chain to get what a member actually needs, not just at retirement, but over the entire course of their employment journey. And that's what we're supposed to care about. So who's really accountable for those outcomes? You know, is it asset managers? Is it boards of trustees? Is it consultants? Well, legally, it's boards of trustees. That's the correct answer. But who's out there pulling the whole thing together? Because I'd argue that what we have done on the consulting side is that we've basically, what's the word? I want to say emasculated these guys. I don't think that's quite the word. But we have really ripped away their power base. And that power base has shifted very dramatically to the asset manager side because they have been perceived to be the people delivering the goods. But where we're failing is not in asset managers delivering the goods. We're failing in the whole solution delivering the goods. And what is it? Now, what I tried to do here, and we actually went through very detailed analysis trying to quantify these things, but I've just had to try to summarize it as quickly as possible. I can show you wonderful little graphs. We don't have time here. What are the decisions with the greatest impact over a 40-year period that someone is supposed to be actually invested in for their retirement savings? What are those decisions that have the greatest value destruction? And the number one decision, the number one value destroyer, or, okay, number one and two. Obviously, the number one is if you don't, aren't required to save, you don't save, okay? So mandation, that isn't a word, by the way, but National Treasury uses it, so I'm gonna use it too. But preservation, that's the number one thing. Now we can all sit back and say, well, we don't have to worry about that. Government will either get its act together with the unions and they'll decide that they're gonna mandate preservation. But if you don't somehow get involved in the discussion, if you don't somehow, as a consulting entity, become involved in getting that connection between employer and fund to make that work, everything you do within, in that board of decision making really is meaningless. Contribution rate, pensionable pay. I had a fascinating discussion with an independent consultant the other day who'd been working on a fund for 15 years and told me with great pride how that, over that 15 years, they'd managed to achieve a 75% replacement ratio fairly systematically for everyone that had retired from their fund. Or so he thought. So I asked him what the employer's rules were around the pensional pay ratio, and he said, huh? And I said, well, you do have the ability as an employee in some companies to decide what portion of your salary you want to make pensionable. And he said, huh? And then he went and checked, and he discovered that that particular company allowed their employers to declare 50% of their pay as pensionable only, which meant that that 75% replacement ratio that they had managed to achieve as trustees fulfilling their fiduciary responsibility 
didn't remotely achieve what it needed to achieve. There's a whole picture out there that a lot of trustees don't even begin to get. There are pieces of the puzzle they don't even see. And the problem is, as we move from DB to DC, we took the employer out of the equation as being responsible for making sure all those gaps were closed. So you have incredible discontinuities between things like you know, leave policies, sick leave policies, and when people get paid out for disabilities six months later. So you've got a three-month sick leave policy that you can't take any longer than three months, but you don't get paid out on your disability for six months. Gaps like this are all over the place. And so who is accountable for those outcomes? The cost of various services, okay, I'm going down the list. Pensionable service, risk benefits, cost of various. Risk benefits has a lot to do, we did an interesting exercise where we were looking at reduction yield in the entire value chain. And the problem is when you use replacement ratios as your target and you have funds in which having you know, expensive risk benefits isn't an option, it's a, you know, what the nature of their industry does, then the amount that you can allocate to that replacement ratio is obviously severely restricted. So again, you, know, you have these different parameters that are working that become almost meaningless to boards of trustees because they don't understand the complexity of all these different dynamics. What I put in red is what the asset manager can control. What is in green belongs to somebody, and I'm not sure who that somebody is. Theoretically, the consultant. And those top three, that should be in the hands of National Treasury, but we're probably gonna be a long time waiting given the way the unions are rattling around in there. The problem is this is the world as we know it, and I know, I know you can't read all that small print, but we've chosen to divide our industry up like this, where we have employee benefit consultants, we have actuaries, we have the asset consultant, asset manager, and administrator. So which one of these is responsible for that whole picture? And the problem is different people have different parts of the puzzle. And we have a regulatory environment that is encouraging this fragmentation, not encouraging it being brought back together again in some consolidated view. So the problem is we need, we can't wait for government. We need a new model. So I've called it the Uber consultant, not to sound too Germanic. And I've said we need an Uber consultant and we need an Uber asset manager. And between these two entities, we'll probably be able to get it right. Let me show you what it looks like, okay? What needs to happen is that instead of all these fragmented consulting specializations, somebody somehow needs to be accountable for making all these different parts come together. So I put out what are the different parts of the model, managing the employer policy and fund policy gaps, providing the, starting with the membership analysis. And the, these are defined contribution funds I'm talking about right now. We're not in, even in the defined benefit space. We need to understand those members. And this is where technology is allowing us to see for the first time that there is no such thing as average anymore. 
there are a whole mess of individuals with very, very different needs. And South Africa is hugely fragmented in terms of what those needs are. And soon, we're going to be accountable for knowing what those disparate needs are and designing solutions that meet them. But you can't do it unless you have a model that pulls all the disparate parts together. Why do I throw in something like risk budgeting that seems like an investment problem? Because the risk budgeting is absolutely critical in the whole picture in terms of how that strategy is actually going to meet the very well-defined liability that comes over here. Right now, if I go back to that first 2002 discussion that we had, why did we have it then? Because that was the period right after Paul Miners had come out and Jeremy Andrew had come out here in South Africa and basically said, guys, we have to stop the horse race kind of model that we're operating to. We have to recognize that there are actually liabilities out there, there are expectations on individuals. It's no longer enough to say that these funds simply serve as a savings vehicle. They actually have to achieve something meaningful in people's lives, and we as boards have to determine what is meaningful. Because individuals can't determine what particularly is meaningful in terms of a 40-year journey. So the Uber consultant, though, and here is where the catch comes in. They can only do it with a profoundly sophisticated toolkit. This is not something you do because you just happen to be really smart. You happen to have, be very wise. You actually need a fairly sophisticated set of tools that allow you to do these kinds of tasks, that allow you to go in to do the, the risk budgeting and the aggregated reporting and the member projections and the member progress monitoring. And let me give you a sense of what that sort of looks like in my world. It means that I can take all of my members over here, these little yellow dots, those are all individual people, and I can take an investment policy and an investment strategy over here that is dependent upon a fund policy in terms of contribution rates and uh, excuse me, pensionable salary percentages and what have you, savings period and uh, excuse me, uh, retirement date. And I can plug in any number of changes in these decisions and watch those dots go up or down because they'll go up and down differentially, of course, as a function of where they are in their journey and as a function of what salary level they're at and as a function of what their current savings are. So see how powerful these kinds of discussions can come when I can actually take that whole picture and start talking to my boards of trustees about these kinds of problems. But it needs funding to do it. You cannot simply go and say, oh, you're an administrator, do this out of the you know, goodness of your heart. And the problem is, with the world as we know it, is that that part of the world, the actuary and the asset consultant, is starting to be just binned by a lot of the global big funds. 50% of American funds, of the bigger funds, don't use asset consultants anymore. They don't think they add any value. I remember when I first came here and we started into the defined contribution space, I was told there was no future for actuarial profession in you know, defined benefit space because the defined benefit funds were going away, and so go find some other career path. I think, personally, we need actuaries more now than ever. 
but we need them in a very different type of role, and you can begin to feel what that role is. It's that huge picture and understanding the complexity of all those parts coming together that's so powerful. As far as these guys, they've been turned pretty much into admin clerks. And I, no disrespect to anybody here who's an employee benefit consultant. But they spend so much of their time, minutes, you know, making sure everything is compliant, whatever, making sure the right benefits are paid out. These are not the people that are going to become your Uber consultants. And these guys here are just getting marginalized and costs are being pushed down. Everybody's caught are being pushed down. The only ones whose costs, not costs, but fees are going up are the asset managers. And why are they going up? Because they've been massively successful, they've had wonderful alpha, and they can command higher fees. So you've got a value chain that's gone haywire. Not in respect to everybody in their own individual areas, because why should we pay these guys on the left anymore if they're not delivering any value? If they're not changing the outcomes to members? And why shouldn't we pay the asset manager more when they're delivering so much value? Because the problem is, for the member, you can't fragment the discussion like that. You have to look at what the whole package and the way its price delivers. And when you look at the way the whole package is priced, you'll see it doesn't work to get the right services on the table that's going to change the outcomes. Back in 2002, I used this really crude assumption, and I was trying to explain this value chain, so I put these little numbers in. And the reality was, the two points I was trying to make was, does this fee structure influence how seriously each participant's role is taken? And does it make sense that we reward the consultant's contribution the least? So that was the starting point. But I also made this point. It's a little hard to see, because I had to transpose these graphs onto the actuarial society. But this was originally a black background. The dilemma is this. For that Uber consultant to work, there has to be an incredibly powerful research capability sitting behind it. And I know because that's exactly what I do day to day is I sit here and try to figure out how can we research these problems. And I need lots of toys and tools to do it. But I'm not paid to do that. So here I am out here responsible for a 40-year time frame. And yet, and so I'm, we're probably the most important part of the equation in terms of getting things right but I've got the least budget. Now this was 2002, and at that time, the trading houses were the ones that had all the money. Um, but the point is, I remember being horrified with how ill-equipped the consultants were at the other end of the spectrum in terms of modeling their assumptions and working on these very complex problems. When the real funding was going down to the day traders, and now the high-frequency traders, and a lot of the modeling work that really needs, and things like recourse optimization needs to be looked at down here, not down here in this area. But it's not going to happen until people start paying people to do these jobs. So the only way this is going to happen is if we can find funding from elsewhere in the value chain. And you know where this is going. And naturally, how does the picture look? How do the costs distribute? 
Well, that blue swatch there, you can't see the writing. That's your asset manager on a regular standalone fund, normal fund with an average member who's about 35 years old. Um, and this is a real fund, and that's the way the costs are distributed in a one-time snapshot. And after a 30-year period, that cost allocation goes up to about 80% of the cost coming from the asset manager. That's not really the point. The point of the costs has also to do with issues like what actually could we possibly charge and still expect there to be something on the table for the member to take off. And this is some old work that was done years ago by Richard Enos. And I love this stuff. It's absolutely fascinating trying to explain exactly how, what happens with your fees. See if I can get a pointer here to work. It doesn't have a pointer on it. But go up to the uh, 50 basis point fee area. And what you'll see there, what is that there? I'm trying to, yeah, let's do this. Let's assume that the manager has a 50-50 skill. And if the costs are 1.5%, there's only a 15% probability of investor success. We do all know that the retail client is completely, okay? We know that, but we're not, we're not talking about that problem here. And the chances of managers having better than 50% or the manager's skill required to have a better than a 50-50% chance is 0.62. These numbers are difficult because we don't know what manager's success is. I remember Richard Grinold saying that anything above a number like 52, 53 was pretty damn good. So 62 puts you right up there. But this isn't about the active-passive decision, because let me show you how this works. Remember I told you we were doing, taking a whole bunch of different types of fund structures and doing analysis that looked at the reduction of yield based on that total cost to the ultimate member. So the issue is not how much money do you lose by the manager fees. The issue is the whole package, what does that do to the individual? And what we discovered down here is that this is an umbrella fund case study platform. Um, and we've tried to look at active and passive on exactly the same basis in terms of all of the other costs, uh, the risk benefits, the um, advice fees, the administration fees, and whatever, and the same base salary. And what we've discovered is that the difference to the replacement ratio from going from active to passive only ends up bumping up that replacement number by about 5.7 points. So it does something, but does it do enough? It doesn't do enough. It doesn't answer the question of where the value destruction is taking place. We need more than just a reduction of active to passive. So I said that there are two parts of the equation. We need to work on the Uber consultant, now we need to work on what does the Uber asset manager look like. And here's some realities to consider. Because I started off saying your problem is that very few people who have an institutional portfolio have only one manager. And the question is, once you start putting those managers together, 
I don't care how differentiated they are, it doesn't take too many differentiated managers blended together to change those tracking errors into something that looks a hell of a lot like an enhanced index fund or an active share into something that you actually have to ask the question, what am I really paying for? So the problem isn't with the individual asset manager and what they charge. The problem is what the client gets as a result of the aggregation of the managers in a blend. And that can never be justified with the kinds of fees that we're charging. The key point is that we don't have to do this with index funds. And that's sort of where National Treasury wants to go. I think there's a better solution out there, but it would require us all to be in agreement with it. I also don't think smart beta is the answer. I like smart beta. I think it has a role. But to just automatically jettison all active management and go to smart beta isn't the answer either. And I absolutely abhor core satellite, which a lot of people love. If you understand core satellite, you'll understand that what happens is that you simply dilute your alpha. You don't increase the quality of your alpha. You just dilute it. I'll show you that in a few minutes. So what's the primary objective of using multiple managers? The idea is to, to, to get that noise to signal ratio down, okay? What we're trying to do is, right there, increase that information ratio. So we've only got a 2% tracking error versus a normal manager of 4%, but our risk to return is now an information ratio of one versus 0.5. That's the objective. But how do you get there? You can't just throw a bunch of managers together. The only way it works is if you've got properly uncorrelated managers. It's the so-called free lunch. I know I'm going to get thrown something at it by saying free lunch, because nothing's a free lunch. But it's out there, the diversification benefit. And the beauty of it is that I don't actually have to have hugely skillful managers to make it work. I just have to have managers that can add just a tiny little bit extra but by virtue of being differentiated, how do you read this chart? Here are my wildly differentiated managers over here. And actually, there's some names here, which is sort of embarrassing, but it shouldn't be, because it all adds up to a nice solution. And then this is the green bars are the alpha on the left-hand side. Why do those green bars go down dramatically? Because market structure makes it impossible during certain times for any diversified manager to outperform the market. Not because they're not skillful, it's a numbers game. So if a market is hugely concentrated with performance being driven by just a few shares, there's no way a diversified portfolio is going to outperform, no matter how skillful you are. Numbers game, okay? So that's why that you see this going like that. But that's what different managers can do. And I'm not trying to sell you multi-manager management. But what I want to show you, just watch these lines. This is what happens with active managers. Watch those green bars, and there's the 60 number up there, percent what it goes up to. Now I'm going to do it with smart beta, okay? Same thing, only I'm going to have value and momentum. And here, my alpha is significantly lower. So what does it tell me? I can get a nice kicker with active managers, and I can get it at pretty much the same risk level that I get from smart beta. So there's something out there. And I explained this thing about the core satellite things. 
because they simply dilute the alpha with no sense of whether you've gained your free lunch, because you don't know whether you've got your diversified managers. So the problem is, you don't get these this benefit if managers all converge into the same space. What did managers in South Africa do over the last five years? They all became value managers. What did they do the previous 15 years? They all were growth managers. You know all the data. This herding problem, it makes a nightmare for anybody who's out there trying to design some kind of controlled solution. So what could be a solution that looks at National Treasury's request to lower fees, looks at the problem of getting better targeted outcomes, looks at the reality that asset managers are getting squeezed all over the place and that there are a lot of big boys out there who are making very good money, thank you very much, and a lot of little managers who don't stand a chance in hell. So I'm gonna be really radical here. I'm gonna say, what if we create two, um, an asset manager who's capable of running two very different mandates? And I'm not gonna talk about the discretionary mandate because that's what you already do. I'm gonna talk about a whole new mandate that you could offer the market. And you go to the market and you say, and we agree, for compulsory investments, this is what we're going to do. For compulsory investments, we're effectively going to provide you, through asset management, with building blocks that you can design solutions for with. We're going to cap the fees. I don't know what that number is, but we're going to cap it. And the reason why we're going to cap it is so that it's fair for everybody. And you as a manager can elect, what are you going to do for that amount of money? But at least the investor knows that's the cap. The point is, what's on offer is something where the selection has nothing to do with performance. It has to do with, can you follow a risk budget that I, the consultant, give you? Because I need you to perform in this part of the market, or in this part of the world, or in this part of the risk budget. What it basically means is that your termination isn't a function of performance either. It's only a function of performance if you can't follow a mandate. What it means for the industry is phenomenal. It significantly expands the number of people who can play in this space. When we did work on the PIC's managers, selecting them, when we did stuff for a number of the big funds, we argued with them, you can have your BE managers. It doesn't matter if they don't have a track record. It doesn't matter if they're not a brand name. Because as long as we give them a very clear risk budget and that we know that they have the tools to monitor that, they'll be able to do it. This is not a complicated job. So you can spread the wealth with these kinds of mandates. You don't have to be a name brand. You shift the world domination away from the big boys, both in the active and the passive space, because that's where the world's going now. But risk management and mandate monitoring skills are the things you're going, the criteria you're going to judge them by. And that's easy for anyone to get right. And it, what it does is that it keeps the horse race where it should be, with the discretionary funds. Horse races don't belong in a pension fund. The value destruction is huge. Remember the Ron Bird and the Jack Gray report for the superannuation fund in Australia. Three 3% per annum of value destruction from chopping and churning managers. Okay? 
So let's combine, I know we've got to wrap up. Sorry, Hildegard. Combine our two Uber roles. If we integrate them, we can do several things. We can start to reduce the overall costs. The asset manager fees would most definitely come down in terms of what they offer the compulsory space. On the consulting actuarial side, we streamline and focus the service to deliver measurable outcomes. Those little dots, I can measure them each year, and I can show the trustees whether I'm winning or losing. I can be evaluated, and that's the problem trustees had. How do I evaluate whether you're any good as my consultant? Now you've got a measurable thing, and you've got streamlined this great fragmented consulting industry so that it's all focused on delivering a specific outcome. But now this warrants a serious rethink of that valuation, that compensation thing. The point is the future is out there and it's coming at you fast. And where do we see it going? The technology will allow us to create individual, this is gonna be the future. It's no longer gonna be one big fund. I can already today, and when I just came back from the US looking at a whole bunch of other systems that are doing it, Russell's doing it, uh, dimensional fund managers are doing it, uh, any number of people are taking big funds, breaking them down, how stupid is a life stage portfolio when we start glide pathing people towards a inflation linked annuity when their fund credit doesn't remotely put them in a good position to purchase such a thing? How stupid is that? But we do that, and we do it across the board in a fund. Now, individualized solutions will look at that fund credit and say, what's going to make sense for that person? when they're five years from retirement, when they're 30 years from retirement, when they're 20 years from retirement, it's coming. And the technology will make it perfectly easy to do at a low cost basis. The Rover Advisor functionality will be there. It means tools will come in to tell members when they need to add something or subtract something. But the point is you still need this Uber consultant to put it all together. On the asset manager side, in the compulsory space, what we basically said is, don't just give us the risk return stuff, or return at a level of risk, give us targeted goals-based building blocks so that I can chop and change those things to get to the different outcomes I need for my individualized members. It means moving from alpha to goals-based. And I just wanna close with, I am closing, Hildegard, sorry. I love this chart, Carl Richards did this in the States, and I think it'll be familiar to most of you. We all learn, and we go and tell our poor clients that don't worry, over the long term, everything will converge and you will get to where you need to go. The reality is something very, very different. And think of recurse optimization, okay? Where at every point in time, you make a decision that you're gonna go this way or you're gonna go this way which means the next decision is either this way or this way, and the next one is either this way or this way, which means that the real world that we live in is this one over here. That the range of outcomes, unless we have more control in the system, actually expands for our members. So, in the final slide, as long as we understand who we are and can come together in a kind of integrated Uber consultant, Uber asset management framework. I think we can crack this nuts. 
but we have to stop operating our own little separate boxes. And that's really all I wanted to say. And you notice how I didn't give you any room for questions, and I'm going to run like hell. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. That was indeed remarkable time management. Uh, there were two tweet comments tweeted. Um, I can allow a few seconds if anybody has got a question for Anne. I missed the start, Anne, but I, I, I know the story. But how is your proposed solution different from core satellite? If you end up capping costs on one side, I think you force managers in that space towards tracking funds and strategies. They, they have that decision, yeah. Sure. Um, and you end up with a solution that is effectively core satellite, which at the start you were not positive on. How do you differentiate? Why is it core satellite? Why is it not a bunch of active smart betas put together? Think of it like that. In other words, I don't think it's core satellite. Core satellite actually means that, I mean, yes, there will be an overlap to the extent that you are holding the market, but what you're doing in your risk budget is that... You, no, I, I, I'm on. By, by giving someone a risk budget and mandate, you're saying, what I really want you to do is drive your performance not from the fact that you're a value manager or a momentum manager. I want, to, I want you to drive it from the shares that you, your, your best ideas. So find a way to structure your portfolio so that your, your specific risk comes f to the fore. Okay, so that is going to allow me, your, your problem is when you put those managers together, you want all of those specific risks to come through in differentiated spaces in the market, okay? But you still want that specific risk to be driving the performance, not some bias here or bias there in terms of a, a style or an industry or a factor like that. So that's why your risk control is important. Not risk to look like the index, but risk in terms of what your decompose. Remember that chart I showed on Bar Rosenberg thing? It doesn't matter as long as you're, you can do it. In other words, it doesn't matter as long as you're controlling how that risk is allocated within that space. It do, it's not so black and white the way you're showing it. In other words, as long as I can incrementally add value here in an area that's, and I add it all together so that my managers are all in differentiated spaces, the sum total of those differentiations is what is powerful. It doesn't work if all my managers do the same thing and I add them all together and they're all in the same specific risk space. Then I have diversified everything away. And that's what the problem is now. So it requires a willing consultant to put it together and a willing manager to manage to those kinds of band-aids. So I'm not saying every manager has to go out and do it. You can say, hell, that's not for me. But I am saying, Rather than go into a space where National Treasury says indexation for stakeholder type funds, I think there's a better answer because when you put those things together, you do end up with a better risk adjusted return for your clients. And that, that incrementally works over time. That's one of the things you can count on compounding over time. Those little bits of better risk adjusted return. I know I gotta stop talking. Thank you very much, Anne.